We turn in the Word of God to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15 is the history of the assembly at Jerusalem. We'll read the first 31 verses of Acts chapter 15. This is the word of the Lord. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us, that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it, was, as it is written, After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble them not, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols, and from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses in old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church, to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner, The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren 
which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. For as much as we have heard and certain that certain went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying, Ye must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who we have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well. Fare ye well. So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle, which when they had read, they rejoiced for consolation. On the basis of this passage and all of the scriptures, we turn to Lord's Day 24 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 24. But why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? Because that the righteousness which can be approved, approved of before the tribunal of God must be absolutely perfect and in all respects conformable to the divine law. And also that our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. What do not our good works merit, which, God, which yet God will reward in this and in a future life? This reward is not of merit, but of grace. But doth not this doctrine make men careless and profane? By no means, for it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord's Day 23, expounded for us the doctrine of justification by faith alone without works. And the Catechism continues its treatment of that doctrine by clarifying that doctrine and answering three common objections against the doctrine of justification by faith alone without works. This doctrine has often come under attack throughout history and the context in which the catechism was written, which is the 16th century Reformation, was one of those most famous attacks against the doctrine of justification. Even as God was using that, using reformers to return the church to sound doctrine, that brought out the attacks of the enemies of sound doctrine. We also need this further clarification and further instruction on justification because it is on these points that we often fall into the temptations of our flesh, that we follow the inclinations of our pride, and we 
depart in that way from this doctrine of God's grace in Christ alone. And we want to give a place for our works in our righteousness before God. We want to think that our working is something that we can use to obtain God's blessings and good things from God. And we may even go so far as to follow the inclination of our flesh to think that this is not a good doctrine because it will not have a good effect on my life or the lives of others. And so we need to face these objections and attacks personally and defend the doctrine of justification by faith so that we can be preserved in our comfort so that God might continue to be glorified and so that this, our witness of this gospel might continue to go forth for the edification of all of God's people. We have read Acts chapter 15, the first 31 verses. As I mentioned, that's the history of the assembly of Jerusalem, which is one of the first, New Te- first assemblies. It is the first New Testament assembly in dealing with a matter that needs and a, of a debate. There are two perspectives, and the issue at hand is how shall Gentile converts be received into the church of Jesus Christ? And the question of how shall they be received into the church was really occasioned by the deeper question of how is a man saved? Not just any man, how is a Gentile saved? And there were some who were teaching that a man must be circumcised after the manner of Moses, and if he is not circumcised in obedience to the law of Moses, he cannot be saved. And there was the other side, which was represented by Paul and Barnabas and by Peter and James, who understood that Gentiles are to be received and are saved in the same manner as we. They are saved by faith in Jesus Christ and not by works. That matter, which is the content of the judgment that they made, is related to Lord's Day 24. Because the dispute was over whether or not the keeping of the law was necessary for a man to be saved. Is circumcision a prerequisite for salvation? And, of course, the answer is no, because we believe in Jesus Christ, and we believe that salvation is through that faith alone. So whether we speak of a particular work according to the law, like circumcision, or we speak more generally of the keeping of the law and the doing of good works, When it comes to our justification and our place within the church of Jesus Christ, we exclude our works and our working from our righteousness, and we do not at all stand upon that ground for our place in the church. Let's consider justification by faith defended, and we'll defend it against the attacks, and we'll understand the attacks But in the end, we're going to defend justification by positively affirming the truth which God has revealed in His Word. That's what the Catechism does 
to answer the objections. It both exposes the lies of the attacks and affirms the truth of God's word and shows that those attacks and what is suggested in opposition to the doctrine of justification is incompatible with the truth of God's word. First, by affirming God's perfect justice. Second, by affirming God's gracious reward. And third, by affirming God's powerful grace. So the question in question and answer 62. Why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? This is a question that arises out of a proper understanding of justification by faith. In fact, you can use this question to explain what justification by faith is. Justification by faith means that my good works are not my righteousness. In fact, they're not even a part of my righteousness. They have no place in my righteousness before God. So the one who is asking the question does understand justification by faith. He does not lack clarity. He does, is not asking out of ignorance. He is following the instruction that has been given, but he is also expressing the objection of the natural heart of our sinful flesh. It's always man's natural inclination to crave a role in his salvation, to crave the glory of that role in salvation, even if it is small. And even if we know that I cannot be my own Savior, Christ is the Savior, but I, perhaps, some way or another, can add to his work and be the explanation for my salvation. Sometimes this question can be asked out of outright rebellion and hatred of God and of Jesus Christ. Other times it can be asked out of ignorance and a misunderstanding of the truth. Sometimes, and other times it can be asked out of uh, immaturity so that there is a mixture of that ignorance and a mi- along with a rebellious attitude and thinking that one is wiser than God craves for himself and crafts for himself a strange doctrine. Those on the re- camp of the rebellious would be the Judaizers who opposed Paul, heard Paul, understood Paul, and yet continued to insist that the keeping of the law was part of their righteousness before God. Those of who were, there are others who kept this perspective out of ignorance and thought that they needed to keep the law. At times, even in my own ministry, I find that those who have been instructed but do not have a sound grasp of the doctrine taught here. They are ignorant of the place of works and need to be reminded that when it comes to our standing with God, we exclude our works, good and otherwise. They don't have a place. In Acts 15 verse 5, we have a situation that seems to be a mixture of the two because the objection is brought by certain of the sect of the Pharisees, but these are Pharisees which believed. These believing Pharisees brought this objection that it was needful to circumcise 
them and to command these Gentiles that they need to keep the law of Moses. So I say that's a mixture because they come out of the sect of the Pharisees and they bring with them some of the baggage of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, in their essence, are not an evil sect. The Pharisees, in their origins, you understand, may understand that, and you may know, that they came out of a desire to reform. In a time that was lawless and in a time when the Jewish religion, leading into the days of the New Testament, that was, the Jewish religion was being lost to the Roman and Greek religions and cultures. And the Pharisees assembled themselves together, determined to keep among them and to preserve among them the keeping of the law of Moses. And that all by itself was not a bad thing. It was good and proper for Old Testament Israelites, these Jews, to keep the law of Moses, to keep the feasts, to bring the sacrifices, and not to be spotted with the defilements of that secular world and religion. But the Pharisees degenerated in time, and they became corrupted, and their emphasis on the keeping of the law, though at first good, became or went astray and was corrupted, and it became their emphasis that the keeping of the law was their righteousness before God. And it's necessary that we keep the law, not just because God has commanded it for this Old Testament nation, but as part of their righteousness before God. And so the certain of the sect of the Pharisees brought some of that baggage with them and some of that rebellion against what God has always made clear. But on the other hand, they are those Pharisees which believed. And they believed that Christ is the fulfillment of that law. They believed that Christ has atoned for their sins and he gave himself to the cross to take away the curse from them. And they understood that this church, this New Testament church, was the church of Jesus Christ. And so out of this immaturity with some of their former perspective as Pharisees, they were still insisting, even as believers who knew and understood God's will concerning our salvation, that circumcision was necessary to be a part of the church and to be saved. So let's respond to that objection and that question, why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? And there are two reasons given. They are related one to another. The first is simply to affirm that the righteousness which can be approved of before the tribunal of God, before God's judgment seat, must be absolute perfect and in all respects conformable to the law. The second is that our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. Taken together, we have a firm answer to the objection of including our good works. Our works can't be even a part of our righteousness before God because of God's high standard. It's perfect. He requires absolute perfection when it comes to our life and our working before him. So anyone who teaches works righteousness, who suggests that our works have a place in our standing before God, are ignoring God's perfect justice. Or they don't understand 
how high that standard is, how perfect that standard is. Absolute perfection, complete harmony with the whole law in all respects, heart, soul, mind, and strength, in private and in public. They need to understand that God as judge never looks at the good works of men that are just a little bit off, a little bit of a departure from the standard, and he says, good enough. It's not absolute perfection, but it's good enough. That's not how God can deal with sins. He does not tolerate any of them. No blemishes may be permitted. And if there is any departure, any spot, any wrinkle, then he must damn it. He must condemn the sinner who has departed from his law. And God in his tribunal from heaven looks down upon us and he does not just look at our outward behavior. He pierces into our minds and into our hearts and he knows when, that, when we have a momentary departure in our emotions. He knows when we have for an instant a sinful thought. He knows in that tiny fraction of a second when we are engaged in something like public worship or in prayer, when all of a sudden we depart from that holy train of thought and have a sinful inclination, or we even are lazy and we lose our train of thought on account of our fleshly weakness. And he damns that work. And we would be liable for, for hell, even for that momentary, tiny sin. So if we bring our works before God's judgment seat, they better be perfect. My works, your works, do not come close. Remember the perfect justice of God and leave your works out of your justification. Leave even your best works. And this is the ignorance of those and the rebellion of those who suggest that our good works can be part of our righteousness before God. Our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. They're as filthy rags if we listen to the prophet Isaiah. We are all as an unclean thing in Isaiah 64 verse 6. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. When he speaks of all of our righteousnesses, he's speaking of those good works. He's thinking of our best works. Those works which other men would approve of. Those works that we would be setting before others when they might ask us for one reason or another. What good works have you done? What things do you do that are conformable to the law? We would say, well, we have these our righteousnesses. And Isaiah confesses for all of Israel that these our righteousnesses are as filthy rags to be rejected, to be cast away. And so we cannot expect our righteous God to approve of anything that is so filthy. And if our best works, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, 
how much more filthy, how much more grotesque are our evil works. Jesus confirms this in his own ministry and in his own preaching in the Sermon on the Mount when he speaks of a need for our righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It needs to exceed their righteousness. And that's not operating on their level to say, well, they focus on righteousness and do more than they do and be more righteous outwardly than they are. That would be to operate on their level. But he's saying it has to exceed there. It needs to be on another level. It needs to exceed their righteousness and quality. They do have an outward righteousness, but let it be an inward righteousness with which God may be pleased. Not even our best works meet that standard, especially when we look into the heart. And for those of us who are struggling against a sinful nature, and that's all of us, there is no justification unless it's a gracious justification that's unmerited and excludes our works. There is no justification except it be a justification by faith in Jesus Christ, for He has fulfilled the law for us. In Acts 15, verse 10, Peter makes his contribution to the assembly at Jerusalem, and he points out that to put upon the Gentile converts the requirement of being circumcised and keeping the law of Moses is a yoke that neither they nor we can bear. Acts 15, verse 10, not 10. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. The yoke, that heavy burden that was unbearable before for the Jews and their fathers was the law of Moses. And in all of the history of Israel, there was not one generation that had been able to keep the law of Moses in such a way that God might be pleased with it. And now they were suggesting that these Gentiles, well, they cannot be saved except they keep the law of Moses. And Peter is saying, none of us can keep the law of Moses. None of us have been able to do that which the Lord requires. Not even our fathers, that holy generation. And so, in the contrary, we believe salvation is through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That salvation is without our works. And thanks be to God that when we affirm the perfect righteousness and judgment of God, and by that affirmation of God's perfect standard, we say to the objectors, we cannot include our works. God's standard is perfect. That we have the better answer to them by pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ whose righteousness is ours by faith and say, here is a righteousness which is in all respects perfectly conformable to the divine law. In Christ, we have an affirmation of God's perfect justice. And we have it as our own righteousness. 
so that there is no need for our works. The second objection is that is an appeal to the reward as though the reward is of merit and that this is a reason to say that our good works should still have a place in our righteousness before God. What do not our good works merit which God will reward in this life and in a future life? And the answer is the reward is not of merit but of grace. We've already decisively ruled out that our works cannot be or have a place in our righteousness before God, but depraved man is slow to be awakened from his dull, ignorant, hard-hearted ways of thinking. And so he continues for a bit to try to find a better way around this conundrum. He wants still, according to his flesh, to have a place for his works before God. And this is also a very natural human objection because everything that we know about works in our human society and life, everything we know about works in a human-to-human context among our peers suggests that there is a value to our works and our working that should be recompensed. That's something very natural and true among us. So it's appropriate for us to think about a service or a work that we do in our earthly occupations and think that there is a value to it assigned to my eight hours of labor here at this job. There is a value assigned to this product that I have crafted and that I will bring to the market and try to sell. And I'm not going to give it up. And when I do give it up, I need to have the right value given back to me. There is a value to our work in the home that ought to garner some respect from those whom we serve in the home. We think of this and in this way all of the time. So when the doctrine of justification by faith without works is taught, it goes against the very fabric of our lifestyle in this world. Aren't our works good? Aren't they worth something? Shouldn't we have something given to us in return for our works and our working? And to confirm that, hasn't God promised to reward our good works? But this objection twists the biblical truth that God rewards the good works of His children. It's true that God rewards our good works, It's not true that God rewards these good works because they have some value to Him or because they merit with Him. So we can answer this objection again along the lines of the Catechism. And there's two parts here again. The first is to affirm by implication that there is a reward for good works. When the objector suggests that the reward contradicts justification by faith without works. The catechism does not overreact and say, well, if the reward even gives you that suggestion or even gives a hint of that, we don't want the reward. And that can be a temptation for us. We don't want to overreact. We need to affirm the reward for our good works. 
The second part of it is to clarify this reward and say that it is not of merit, but of grace. God sees our good works. We do good works by His grace. And God does reward them, and He will reward them. When God looks at us and the things that we do, He takes an account of our works, good and evil. And He looks at our good works, and He sees that they come out of the holy root of faith, which is to say that they come forth from His beloved Son, in whom He is well pleased. And He accounts them as good works for Jesus' sake, because they are done by us, who are righteous in his sight. And when he takes account of us and of these good works that are conformable to his law, sanctified by Jesus Christ, he is pleased with those works and he issues rewards for those works. Those rewards can be temporal or they can be eternal or both. A mother or father who faithfully labors with their children and training them and disciplining them and caring for them, they will be rewarded often in this life as they see their children preserved in good health and as they mature in good spiritual strength, walking in truth. A husband and a wife may be rewarded for their love and faithful help of one another, as they follow God's design for marriage, and God may bless them with many years together in faithfulness to each other and in happiness with with one another. This faithful saint who keeps God's commandments in his station and calling, the obedient child toward his parents and superiors, the elder who rules well, the deacon who is merciful in receiving and distributing the alms, And then all the way to the persecuted and the martyrs. They are rewarded in this life or in the next. More often than not, in the next. They receive good according to their works. The psalmist knew this in Psalm 19, verse 11, when he says, Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, by thy commandments is thy servant warned. And in keeping of them there is Great reward. And Moses in Hebrews 11, he lived by contemplating the reward that God might give him. When he was in Egypt and in the house of Pharaoh's daughter, he more highly esteemed the reward that that he would have from God in following and bearing the reproach of Jesus Christ than the rewards he might have for staying in Pharaoh's house and having all of the riches and pleasures of Egypt for a season. We can be mindful of the reward and even be encouraged by the reward as we seek to do what is good and right in God's sight. However, we need to be careful that all the rewards that God gives to us who are mere creatures are not rewards of merit but of grace. If we say that a reward is of merit, we mean that it's a wage that has been earned. And if it's not paid to us, then there is an injustice. If the reward of good works is of merit, then God is duty-bound to give those things to us, and He is beholden to us for the works that we do. He's obligated to give us a reward. 
And it even means that we could lift up our souls into heaven and bring ourselves to eye level with God, as it were, and demand, you owe me this good thing. You owe me this reward. And this cannot be because God is God and we are dust. Because God's righteousness is perfect and our works do not merit. Because they do not measure up. Our works are defiled. They're as filthy rags. If we, in our peer-to-peer context, make a faulty product and try to sell it at full price, then we know that we are lying and scamming. If we are paid for a certain service and we do shoddy work, then we know that we do not deserve the full payment of that price. Why then would we ever expect a reward based on merit when our works all fall so far short of God's absolute righteousness? No, when our good works are rewarded, they are rewarded graciously. God rewards the good works that He has ordained for us to do. God rewards the good works that He has equipped us to do. God equips us and then He rewards us on top of it. We're little children who have no skills, no experience, no abilities, and our Father gives us the ability to do a work, appoints us to do the work. He gathers the necessary equipment and material for us to do the work. He's side by side with us, helping us do the work. He's guiding our fingers as we do the work. And then when the product is finished, the child has to look at his father, and he may very well be very proud of the work that he has done, but he knows that there is no work, there's no ability, there's no understanding, there's no product except God has equipped him for that work. And all the glory for that work ultimately goes to the Father. Now the illustration falls short because there is something inherently different about earthly father and child and our Father in heaven and us. But there is something in that illustration that helps us because the Father might still give that that child, his child, a reward for that work he has done. Not because of the work, not because of the product, but because the father loves that child and he's pleased with that child and because that child is his child. And that translates to our theological context because the reward that God gives us, which is in harmony with works and according to good works is ultimately given to us on the basis of Christ's righteousness which is imputed to us because if God looked at us and looked at his child and and saw a good work defiled he would never reward that work but God looks at us and he sees us as having fulfilled the law of God perfectly He's pleased with us. And he looks at the work that we, the righteous, have done. 
And he sees it sanctified by the righteousness of Jesus Christ and he gives us a reward of grace. The reward of grace is given to justified sinners. It's God crowning his grace with his gifts. So we can affirm the gracious reward and in affirming the gracious reward then we are defending justification by faith alone. We don't need to bring works into our righteousness because of passages that speak of a reward. We can simply affirm God's grace. In the third place, we affirm God's powerful grace, which is to say that the grace of God is not just His favor undeserved toward us, but the grace of God is a power that works within us, renews us, and sanctifies us unto good works. And we affirm that grace of God over against the final question and objection, but doth not this doctrine make men careless and profane? The answer, by no means, for it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. This again rises out of the previous questions and answers, and now in this one especially, we see the stubbornness and the hardness of natural man's heart. Even after being turned away on two solid grounds, he still persists, and now he does not even really bring an... He's bringing an objection that is of a different character, which is slanderous toward the truth of God's word, saying that a justification by faith without works will make men careless and profane so that they do more wickedly. They live ungodly lives and are encouraged in that ungodly life. Or they might become careless because our good works don't have a place in our righteousness. Now, I don't need to care about whether I do good or evil. The objectors make a logical argument that the flesh is attracted to. The flesh that always loves wickedness. The flesh that is naturally lazy in spiritual things. The flesh is looking for a reason to reject justification by faith as much as the flesh is looking for a way to do wickedly. This ignores faith and the grace that is given to us through faith. And it denies the truth of God, that God's truth will never tend towards ungodliness, but always tends towards obedience. It is impossible for believers to be careless and profane. It is impossible that sound doctrine makes men careless and profane. In no way. The answer to this objection is to point to the grace of God that is through that same faith by which we are justified. Faith is that which unites us to Jesus Christ. Faith is the means whereby we are implanted into Christ. Faith is that graft 
between us who, are, who were dead branches into Jesus Christ, the living vine. And now those who are given a place in Jesus Christ and who have a place in that vineyard by grace alone will surely come to life and bring forth fruit. And they might bring forth a wide variety of fruits in varying amounts. Some might bring forth 30, some 60, some an hundredfold. But there is no doubt that a living branch attached to the living vine will bring forth fruit. So we affirm the powerful operation of God's grace. And in doing so, we defend the gracious justification of sinners and that doctrine as a sound doctrine which tends to the glory of God through our obedience to His law. Beloved congregation, we have these truths in our hearts and in our minds. And if we have these truths in our hearts and minds, then we are ready to give an answer to great and mighty opponents of the truth of God's Word. Practice defending the truth of God's Word. For the sake of your own comfort, for the sake of the comfort of your children, your loved ones, and for the sake of your witness to God's Word and to the glory of Jesus Christ, Practice affirming for yourself the goodness of our works. Affirming for ourselves the reality that we do good works and yet the exclusion of them from our righteousness before God. Practice that as you pray to God. Set apart your works and solely rest in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Practice affirming the perfect justice of God so that you don't deceive yourself even for a moment that we can do something that would please God and would give us a place in His church. Practice affirming the reward and that it is of grace. And look forward to the rewards and count the many ways that you have been rewarded in this life already and look forward to the rewards God will give in heaven. But then always remind yourself why you might receive these rewards and expect them. By the grace of God you receive these rewards and not of merit. Because you're righteous already in Jesus Christ and we're acceptable to God, can we expect these good things? In practice, affirming that the truth tends to godliness and that all of the things which become sound doctrine are things that are characterized as godly and obedient to God's law and that in receiving this justification merely of grace, we are assured of that connection between us and Jesus Christ, the life that flows to us, and we have every motivation to be diligent and holy in this life and all our days. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank Thee for the gift of grace and that we can turn to Thee, setting aside the works that we have done and be received of mere grace for Jesus' sake. We pray that that might encourage us to do good, to obey Thee, not to merit with Thee, but in the expectation of reward 
and in our expression of gratitude for all that thou hast done for us. Amen.